We're going to talk about the Gospel of John this morning a little bit. One of my favorite. I love John because he's a little bit different than the other three. He deals a lot with unseen certainties. How can that concept possibly be? How can you have something that's certain and unseen? Sounds like an oxymoron to me. And yet, that seems to be John's approach in, many, in the gospel he's written. There's a reality we can see, and there's the reality that has a deeper and more important meaning um, that we don't see and is accessed only through faith. We're going to look at a part of John's gospel today that is all about wearing faith glasses, faith in Jesus glasses, without which life is full of anxiety and depression, which seems to be the reality that COVID has left us with. I had a friend recently felt he needed counseling and couldn't even get in because counselors are overbooked and can't take on more clients. However, Jesus has offered us life of rest and inner peace, even in the midst of this trouble. Bow your heads with me and let's invite the Holy Spirit among us. Father in heaven, as we open your word and look at your um, word to us, we pray for those faith in Jesus' glasses that we can see the reality of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to study the chapter in John today that is dealing with the last great I am statement or the testimony that Jesus left with us of who he is. Um, the story represents the climactic sign. All of the signs presented by John are real and meant to be the testimonies of Jesus, but John uses this last I am statement as another description of who Jesus is. I am life, testified by the raising of dead man back to life. And it ends up being the drop that overflows the um, proverbial Jewish cup, the Jewish leader's cup. They've had enough. But for us, it's the climatic I am statement from Jesus and the importance of faith in him. So open your Bibles, if you will, to John 11. We're going to start this story. Um, of how I am life became real. John starts out, by first of all, by introducing the characters of the story. Okay. It's not moving. The characters are, am I pushing the wrong button? Ah. <laughs> um. The characters, a man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters Mary and Martha. The sisters send a message to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom... Okay, we're not going to make it through with this thing. Lord, he whom you love is sick. Did I do... Okay. Lazarus, meaning God is my help, is really in need of God's help at this time. The sisters, even though they did not specifically request help, are sure Jesus will. And they trust that he will do something timely. Jesus' response, 
is, this sickness will not end in death, but it's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Ah, Jesus has a plan. No problem, right? Well, yes, there's a plan, but it seems that the plan of God did not match the sister's plan. Ever happened to you? Can you relate? Um, God's plan always matches yours? Are you ready? We're going to notice a huge paradox here. Jesus loved Lazarus, Mar Mary, and Martha. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer where he was. What? I can hear Martha and Mary saying, Jesus, get over here now. I need you now. You see, it reminds me of this story of my little daughter. Well, not little now, but she wasn't even quite two when I was in the kitchen getting cleaned up and getting ready to make dinner. And she walks in and says, Mommy, I hungry. Yes, Melissa, I know you're hungry. We're all hungry. I'm working on getting it. I'm going to be making dinner. Mommy, I hungry now. It has become the statement for our whole family. We see none of us are very good at this waiting. We want things now, and it seems to be something that we don't grow out of very well. But the real question that I have in my mind is how can it say he loved, so he delayed? Does it? Obviously, it's not for a lack of affection that he delayed. Can it be true that delays are designed to show the magnitude of the miracle? We rarely understand God's timing and purpose. We humans are so impatient. I, I know. It's easier to believe the worst, but we can trust his love. Faith over fear, right? Let's see how this family managed it. Finally, in verse 7, Jesus says, let's go to Judea again. Just a minute, Jesus. I think you forgot something, I hear his disciples saying. We left Judea because the Jews there wanted to kill you. Did you forget that already? So tell me again, why do you want to go back there? Verse 8, the disciples call Jesus rabbi for the last time in this gospel. Can we get the next slide? Does it say rabbi? Yes. Rabbi, they said, only a few days ago, the people in Judea were trying to stone you, and you're going there again? His public ministry is coming to an end, and it seems his disciples fear and realize that Jesus is in imminent danger. Jesus explains his decision to go back. Lazarus has fallen asleep. Jesus says, we must go to Judea to wake him up. This seems to be kind of common in this gospel. The disciples misunderstand sleep. They misunderstand. This time it's about sleep and respond in the literal meaning of sleep. Okay, if he's sleeping, he will recover. That's a good thing. If somebody's sick and they sleep, that's usually very helpful in the recovery. 
So why do we have to go back there where the people were trying to kill you? Even so, Jesus' comment seems to calm down the disciples to some degree, and they know there's no issue. Sleep means that he will get well. Oops. Disciples need their, patient, their glasses on, those faith glasses. Jesus tries to guide them and help us as well to see the literal meaning of what sleep was all about. And then Jesus says something strange again, to me at least. Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. So now you will really believe. Come, let us go see him. Lazarus is dead. And I am glad. How can you be glad about this? How can we be glad when he doesn't show up in time? How can we still believe? Can you hear Jesus say, oh, I'm never late. I'm always on time. Just believe in me, and you will see my glory. You see, if they had learned the lesson now of this, I expect that their devastating fear and um, whatever um, they felt when Jesus died may not have been quite so strong. I have found it to be true that if I don't learn my faith lesson the first time around, when God has to teach me again, it's a little more intense. Has God ever had to hit you over the head with a baseball bat? Um, so the disciples, thanks to Thomas, by the way, Thomas says, okay, guys, come on. If he's going to Judah, then we might as well go with him. And if he's going to have to die, then we'll just have to die with him. Now, you see, at this time in history, death was not viewed like we view it now. Death was very devastating. It was paralyzing, almost to the point of crippling. Um, extreme grief was common. We see that in several of the Bible stories where there's intense wailing um, in the mourning process. But starting at this, at this story, and even so more, when, even more so when Jesus lived and died, um, the attitude that we approach, his believers then have a different view of death. The deceased are now resting in a sweet sleep, waiting for, waiting for resurrection morning, when they all hear that voice calling them to be with him. At least that part of the lesson that we're talking about today is a little easier for us, thanks to these stories. But let's jump ahead a minute to um, verse 17, where Lazarus had been dead for four days. Why is it important that we know Lazarus was in his grave for four days. John makes special effort to mention this, and this isn't the only time he mentions it in this story. He'll mention it again. Some study of that found, I found that um, many of the people of that time believed that the soul did not leave the body for at least three days. 
it stayed with the body until the body started decaying and then left. So right or wrong, Jesus is attempting to impress these people with the fact that Lazarus is really, really dead. He's not just laying there, you know? Lazarus is really dead. His soul has even left him, which will make this miracle that we're about to talk about an even more impressive event. The people are supposed to see who is this that's done this, the I am life. He's come to Bethany. It's only two miles from Jerusalem, closer and closer to his own death. Many of the Jews are there at Mary and Martha's house to console them. This morning, though, I want to focus on the interaction between Mary or between Martha and Jesus. Martha's the active sister. She's usually the host, the greeter, the server. Plainly, she's the one in charge. So when she heard Jesus was coming, in verse 20, she goes out to meet him. And this is where we have the most amazing dialogue of faith. I'd like to use the analogy of a layered fruit, such as an orange, of citrus fruit, such as an orange. You see, it has three layers. It has the rind, or the outer skin. It has a spongy inner white lining. And then finally, the, the juicy pulp. As we peel this away right now through the rest of this, or for part of this story, notice the layers of faith. The first level, the skin. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now, I know whatever you ask God, God will do for you. Martha's statement is more about regret than rebuke. It demonstrates a lot of faith. As a matter of fact, she believes in his ability to heal, and he has God's inner ear. She demonstrates a belief that even though Jesus showed up late and missed a great healing opportunity, God was still listening, and he would hear him. Martha confirms this faith when she says, I know that, whatever, that God hears you. She has the how of a Christian's life secure. Believe in prayer and spiritual gifts. This is important, but only touches the surface. Hang on. Let's look at the white lining now, the second level. level. Jesus answers, your brother will rise again. Yes, yes, I know, says Martha. I know he will rise again when everyone else rises at the last day. At first, this seems like a, a common method of consolation, but Jesus has a deeper meaning. And Mar Martha does reveal more of her faith. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. She is certain that she will see her brother again. She has her doctrines right. She has the what of a, of a Christian life firmly in her belief system. After all, Daniel 12 talked about an integral part of Jewish belief in that those who died believing in Jesus were just waiting for his return. But there's still a lot more than the what 
of the Christian life. So we get to the sweet pulp. You see, Jesus does not just give life. He is life. I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live, even after dying. Do you believe this, Martha? Jesus is here attempting her, attempting to help Martha develop an even deeper level of faith and understanding. He wants her to believe in the core, the who of Christian faith. Oh, Martha. Oh, Sharon. You know many things. You know the what and the how. You know the 28 doctrines. You know them so well. But do you know the who? Do you believe in the who, the very core of our fruit faith, of our faith fruit here? I am life. Now Martha is ready to let go and says, Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God. She believes him to be the Christ. She believes him to be the Son of God. She believes him to be the one who is to come into the world and who fulfills the messianic expectations. But now comes the test. You see the how and the what. We've got the doctrines and the knowledge. But like a straw in the fruit, we need to pull out that sweet inner juice and believe in Jesus, and you will be saved. I have finally come to believe that we are not to try to reach people with the how and the what, because those things are merely in service of the who. But hang on, there's more. Jesus and Martha continue their dialogue at the tomb. Where have you laid him? Come and see. Jesus wept. The word used here is different from the word previously used in this story about the wailing of the Jews at the house. The word for wept here is more of a quiet weeping. Jesus knows what he's about to do. He knows Lazarus is going to be raised soon and that he's not going to miss his friend for long. But he is so moved by everyone else's sorrow that he weeps. Perhaps he knows that many aren't going to believe him on the who level. They're only going to stay at the what and the how. But he weeps with you in your darkest hours. Even though he knows the outcome, even though he knows that death and evil will be exterminated, he is touched by your sorrow. Roll the, si the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested. Lord, he's been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. These few verses are going to remind us that Lazarus is really dead. And it seems that Jesus has some kind of a lack of understanding here. Martha pipes up, oh, Jesus, are, are you, have you forgotten? Are you not aware how long Lazarus has been dead? He stinks. Even if you wanted to see your friend, since you were a little late getting here, and pay your respects, he's starting to decay and you won't recognize him. 
In verse 42, Jesus says to Martha, Did I not tell you, Martha, that if you believe in me, you will see the glory of God? Believe in me. Then Jesus prays a very simple prayer. He thanks God for hearing him. For those there in that place so that they will believe. You see, they know the scripture. They know the how and the what. But Jesus prays that they may believe that you sent me. And in verse 30, or 43, Jesus shouts out, Lazarus, come forth. If Jesus did not call him by name, life itself would have raised everyone within hearing, di hearing distance of him. But Jesus cries out, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hand and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth, and Jesus told them to unwrap him. John tells us that many did believe, but there were many there who also ran to the Pharisees. And from that day forward, they planned to kill him. According to John's gospel, the resurrection of Lazarus is what triggered the hurry-up in the death of Jesus. It would seem that Jesus died, that Lazarus lived. This story also must be interpreted as an enacted parable, that someday soon that same voice will order those who believed out of their tombs. Jesus is our assurance of eternal life. Jesus is life. Now it's your choice. You can live your life by sight, but I warn you, it stinks. Or you can live by faith in the Son of God and see his glory. Your two choices. Believe and you'll see his glory, choosing faith over fear. So even though you may be suffering, God weeps with you. But the Bible says that he has a plan. Remember in Revelation 21? He will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. They will no longer be death. There will no longer be mourning or crying or pain, for the first things have passed away. This is the uncertain reality that, reality that you can live with when you have your faith glasses on. So why is this enacted parable? What, what is important about this enacted parable? Turn with me over to John 19 and 20 as we see the tetelestai, the completion. Jesus' words, since the resurrection of Lazarus had triggered that great event of our, of our salvation, we are going to see what the culmination um, is about in the book that John has written, so that you may come to believe the divinity of Jesus. John is saying that if you are a believer in Jesus, then I tell you with certainty what the end of your journey is. Really, John? You can do that? Oh, yes, says John. He said, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. Okay, let's look a little deeper into what Jesus emphasized to Martha. We see that the hour has come. 
apparently very early in Jesus' life, he knew his purpose here. And even at this very first miracle in Cana, he reminds his mother that my hour has not yet come. Um, and then later in John 17, he now knows that the hour has come. John is very purposeful in bringing these points out because he wants you to understand Jesus is in control of this. Jesus did not have a surprise. He knew what was coming up. This was the plan, and he's fulfilling the plan that he had set forth. John's very purposeful in making sure you understand that and goes into some detail about how he knows. He brings up a couple of things from the Old Testament prophecies um, and shows how they were fulfilled. Um, even the little details, such as um, he carried his own cross, which enacted out the, the wood for the sacrifice that Isaac caused. And the detail from Isaiah 53, where he says he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. John wants you to be sure, along with Martha, that the who, the Jesus, is the fulfillment of those prophecies, and that the details are not mentioned in other Gospels. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? John says, yes, I was there. I know these things that were prophesied about him have been fulfilled. One of those details is the sign that was placed on the cross, the legal charge, the reason Jesus was crucified. It was written in four different languages so that everyone around could read it. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. The Romans crucified him for treason and sedition. However, the paradox of the sign is that the Jews refused him as their king, and they said, we have no king but Caesar. They didn't want Jesus as their king. So even though he is the king of kings, the king of the universe, the Jews rejected him. And by Jews, it's their leaders. And then John goes into the, the tradition of the Romans um, when they did a crucifixion. The condemned person was placed in the center of a quaternium. I hope I said that right a company of four soldiers. And they were given the garments of the one who has been crucified. In Jesus' case, they divided his outer garment at the seams. But because the inner garment was one piece and of more value, although I'm not sure how a bloody garment has value. Maybe they had OxyClean for all I know. Um, at any rate, John is showing the fulfillment of Psalms 22, where they divide my garments among themselves, and throw dice for my clothing. Actually, all of Psalms 22 is a foreshadow um, expression of Jesus' crucifixion. John goes on that, in contrasting that the Roman soldiers who only wanted the, his clothing, it seems, um, John records that there were four women there. Mary, his mother, his aunt, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. 
And then John goes on to record what is believed to be the last three sayings of Jesus before he died. And number one is addressed to his mother the beloved and the beloved disciple. I've heard many sermons on this, but it still amazes me that in spite of the extreme pain of being crucified and having been beaten as much as he was, he still remembers mom. He continues to be sure that his mother is cared for. And, and um, even though she, she had been through enough ridicule, verbal abuse, from being pregnant out of wedlock in the first century AD, she had to witness the rejection by the Jews and still held fast her faith to the prophecies of him as a savior. And now she has to watch as he dies a cruel death. So Jesus says, woman, behold your son, and to his disciple, behold your mother. The second um, statement that Jesus makes continues to show that he's in control. Because you see, it wasn't the nails that held him on the cross. It was his love for you. His burning desire to rescue you and save you and me for eternity. Jesus knows that the tetelestai of his mission is nearing. And he says, I thirst. Fulfilling Psalm 69, where they gave me vinegar for my drink. Now this drink that John is referring to is the one that he accepted, and not the one that's referenced in other um, gospels about the one with the numbing agent. Jesus wanted to be sure he was clear-minded as he faced this last um, trial and temptation from Satan. But this time, he's ready to accept a drink, something that would moisten his lips and throat so that he would be able to make one more proclamation. And this is found in verse 30 when he shouts out his victory. It's just one word, tetelestai. It is finished. The Greek word meaning it is done, it is accomplished, it is finished, it is completed. Jesus has announced to the universe, it is D-O-N-E, done. And then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Jesus designed the plan, and now he has completed the plan. You see, God chose to die rather than spend eternity without you. Oh, Jesus, how could you love me this much? Fortunately for me and you and Lazarus, this isn't quite the end of the story. It's only the end of sin's reign. And as we continue to look at the rest of this um, chapter, we see that Joseph and Nicodemus are sent to care for the body. And in broad daylight, they all see where Jesus has been laid to rest. Everybody sees where he is. And then as it happens early Sunday morning, Mary finds the stone removed and the tomb empty. She tells Peter and John, who run to the tomb to see for themselves, Jesus had resurrected from the dead. Death could not hold life in its, victor in its grip. John and Peter see 
and believe. The disciples had not yet understood the prophecies, but now they see and believe. Again, John answers the question, were you there when he rose up from the grave? Oh, yes, says John. I was there. I saw the empty tomb. He does, Jesus does appear to his disciples in the upper room with the doors locked not long after that. Now, imagine with me that you're one of the disciples in that upper room. What's your reaction when Jesus shows up? After all of the grief and disappointment and whatever. Are you stunned? Are you able to speak? Do you fall to the floor? Or are you an all in him? Did you read verse 20? It says, the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Wait a minute! I've been so depressed and I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm jumping up and down. I'm saying, wonderful to see you. The disciples were glad that Jesus was there with them. It just doesn't seem to cover the scope of what I would expect to see my friend. But Thomas was not there. The other disciples tell of him, him of the encounter, but Thomas is skeptical. Thank you, Thomas. You opened the door that we've been see too. After all, John and Peter came and saw, and <clears throat> that's what triggered their belief. But Thomas says, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger in the place of his side, I will not believe. Did you know that this is the only place in Scripture that mentions nails? And it's how we know that Jesus was crucified with nails, or that nails were used, excuse me, used in the crucifixion. Thomas the twin is an interesting character. He's loyal, but pessimistic. He expected the cross. Remember when Jesus announced he was returning to Judah to raise Lazarus? Thomas was one, the one that said, let us also go, that we may die with him. And now I can see Thomas spending that week mourning alone. I just knew it. I knew if he'd come back here, they'd get him. I knew he would die. He could have been rejoicing. But now he waits for a whole week because his in, of his unbelief, his joy is delayed. Hmm. I wonder if my joy is ever delayed because I can't quite believe. Do I spend a lot of time regretting and worrying and fussing because I just don't believe? Oh, that faith prevailed. The story continues, though. We're getting to the good part. Eight days later, the disciples are all gathered together again. This time, Thomas is with them. Again, the doors are shut. Jesus appears and says, peace be with you, and immediately addresses Thomas. Reach your fingers and, and look. Look at my hands. Touch my side. See that it's real. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Could there be a more direct answer to, to Thomas's prayer? Thomas said, unless I see, and within days, there it is, he sees. 
now that we now that we see the true Thomas in the sight of Jesus with his faith glasses firmly on, he expresses the most profound confession in all of the Gospels. He doesn't reach out and touch. He falls on his knees and says, my Lord and my God. Thomas is the first to confess Jesus as God. God became flesh and died to accomplish our salvation. Now, this is the part I've been waiting to tell you about. You see, this is where, because of John or because of Thomas's opening a door, you get a blessing. Because the next thing is said, because you have seen me, you believe. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. Did you know you have a great blessing? Because you believe, even though you didn't see. From that time on, the basis of faith would be the only way, and those that do so are blessed. Oh, thank you, Thomas. I know we spend a lot of time putting him down because he's doubtful, but he triggered your blessing. And this is the reason John writes his book, that we may believe. This book including the story of Lazarus and the resurrection, is not written as a biography of Jesus with details of his life. It is not written for facts only. It is written that we may believe. He says, but therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, you may have life in his name. The truth we are to believe is twofold. Jesus is who he said he was. He is the who of the gospel. He has done what he said he has. He purchased eternal life and conquered the curse of death. This is his glory. Tetelestai, it is completed, it is finished. Jesus came that Lazarus and you and I may have life and have it abundantly. He came and gave us the life that he purchased on the cross through his blood and rose again that we have the guarantee of that life. This is what the Tetelestai, the completion of his mission in coming to dwell with us was all about. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me?